Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we'll be reading verses 25 through 37. It's very important that we don't have the attitude that we want something new that we've never heard every week. Um, uh, we need many times to simply go back over the things that we have heard many times because it is those things that we so often forget and need to be reminded of. And uh, so likewise, in the text that is before us this Lord's Day, Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, shall I do, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will pay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. Lord Jesus summarized all of our duties that we owe to one another uh, in one commandment. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But then the question arises, 
But who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor to whom I am to show that love? The Jewish rabbis at the time of Christ <clears throat> interpreted the word neighbor as synonymous with a fellow Israelite. That was your neighbor, a fellow Israelite. Therefore, there really was no obligation uh, to show uh, love, compassion to those who were non-Israelites. However, Jesus here very clearly condemns that very narrow, unbiblical interpretation. Dear ones, we can do exactly the same thing when we apply passages that speak of our obligation to love our neighbor. We can show that same kind of narrowness and we will not show that kind of love to those of a different nationality, of those of a different color, those who belong to a different church, those whom we just don't like. However, such of you will not be held up by the Lord Jesus himself, not by Christ's interpretation as to who our neighbor is and who we are to show the love of Christ to. The main points from today's sermon are in the form of two questions. The first question is, who is my neighbor? And the second question is, am I to love even my enemy? So the first question, who is my neighbor? Well, having read Luke 10, verses 25 through 37 already, uh, we'll just work our way uh, through that passage. As Jesus was ministering uh, in the region of Judea, a certain lawyer, we were told, uh, came to the Lord Jesus. A lawyer was one who was trained in rabbinic interpretation of God's law. The rabbis had their own interpretations, as again we've already noted, that they had a very narrow interpretation of who one's neighbor was, and a fellow Israelite. And so again, the fact that this lawyer was trained uh, in rabbinic interpretation of God's law did not mean necessarily that he properly interpreted God's law. But he comes uh, to the Lord Jesus, and he puts uh, to the Lord Jesus an ensnaring question in verse 25. Master, well, it says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this was not an honest question on the behalf of this lawyer, but a question meant to catch Jesus uh, in some error, some mistake, for which Jesus then might be accused uh, before the Sanhedrin. So as Jesus so often did with such entrapping questions, uh, he responds to a question with a question. Back to the lawyer. In verse 26, he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? So he basically puts the question back to him, what does the law say? 
The lawyer then replies, and he replies, according to Lord Jesus, he replies accurately in verse 27. And he, that is the lawyer, answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy strength and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. That was basically, again, just a summary of God's law. It was a summary of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the first table of God's commandments, commandments one through four, are summarized by love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second table of God's law, commandments five through 10, are summarized by uh, that second great commandment, uh, love thy neighbor as thyself. A summary, we ought to make the point, a summary of God's law does not mean that the law of God is finished uh, with us, that we are still bound uh, to the law of God. It's just an abbreviated uh, version of God's law. That's what a summary is. And so the fact that God summarizes his law doesn't mean that his law is no longer applicable to us or that we're no longer bound to it. It's just, again, a shorter version and abbreviation of God's law. So that is a, a summary of God's law, those two great commands that were given here by the lawyer, which Jesus then commends in verse 28. And he, that is Jesus, said unto him, Thou hast answered right. Do this, and thou shalt live. Note that the lawyer wanted to know what he must do. And you want to highlight that. What he must do to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus says back to to him, in effect, after he responds, and Jesus says to him, what does the law say? The lawyer then quotes, again, the two great commandments. And again, this is simply pointing out, Jesus is simply pointing out to the lawyer, if you want to have eternal life by way of your doing, by way of your obeying, then you've got to obey God's law perfectly. You've got to keep God's law perfectly because God doesn't grade on a curve. You've got to be as holy as God is and perfectly keep loving God inwardly and outwardly every moment of the day with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor inwardly and outwardly as you love yourself throughout the day, without fail. You love God perfectly and you love your neighbor perfectly. Jesus is basically saying here, you will then have eternal life if that's, again, how you're approaching the matter of life that you must do. If you must do, then you must do perfectly without any fault. The problem is that none of us, none of us can achieve that perfection because we're all sinners by nature. And Adam, 
and all sinners in our own practice. We fall short of the glory of God daily in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. However, in God's great mercy, that perfect obedience that is required by God to God's law was fulfilled and secured by Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all righteousness for his people and graciously credits to our account that perfect righteousness when we believe and trust in him. That we have that, that righteousness which God then requires, not because we performed it, but because Jesus performed it on our behalf and he is the one in whom we trust. But in this particular case that we find here in Luke chapter 10, Jesus placed the burden of perfectly keeping God's law back upon the shoulders of this lawyer in order to drive him to the place and to the point that he realized, I can't be saved. I cannot perfectly keep God's law. I'm doomed to see his own hopelessness if he's going to, to, be, to have eternal life, the hopelessness that rests upon him, if it depends upon him, if it depends upon his obedience to keep God's law. And so the Lord is, in effect, driving him back to the law to show to this lawyer there's only futility and hopelessness if you go that route because... You must receive eternal life as a free gift through faith and trust in me. The words of the Lord Jesus here, do and thou shalt live, should have humbled this lawyer and turned him from his own self-righteousness and from his own pride to cast himself upon the mercy of God that is found in Christ Jesus. But to the contrary, the lawyer rather sought to justify himself and make himself appear righteous before the Lord Jesus by asking the question, in verse 29, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? If I am to love perfectly my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? that I am to love. Rather than saying, I can't do it, I can't keep that law, I must turn to God for the mercy that is offered to me in Christ, he rather uh, justifies himself by saying, who is my neighbor? Oh, the pride, dear ones, that is in each of our hearts. Each of our hearts that binds us to our own self-righteousness. For we will justify ourselves. We will excuse our sins. We will blame others for our own sins. If we get angry, we'll blame somebody else for our anger. Now they may have provoked us and they may be responsible for, what, for that provocation, but we can't blame them that we got angry with them. That's our sin. We can't blame somebody else. 
for that particular sin. We do try to, again, continually justify ourselves and our own self-righteousness and blame others and blame our unloving heart that we have toward family members and toward brethren uh, upon them, not upon ourselves. Dear ones, the self-justification offered here by this lawyer actually becomes the occasion for Christ to present in a parable a most memorable answer to the question, who is my neighbor that I am to show the love of Christ to? Are there boundaries to Christian love? Are there those who are deserving of our Christian love and those who are not deserving of our Christian love? Are we allowed to draw those boundaries? Well, the parable of the Good Samaritan, perhaps even better entitled the parable of the loving Samaritan, because if we read the immediately foregoing context, it's about love, right? To love God with all your heart, soul, and mind strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then, in order to justify himself, who is my neighbor? So it's really about the loving Samaritan, the Samaritan who showed love of God uh, to a Jew who was injured, beaten. In the parable, a certain Jew was traveling along the road leading from Jerusalem to Jericho, a distance of approximately 15 miles. When he was robbed, savagely beaten, severely wounded, and was uh, stripped of his clothing, all of his possessions taken, and he was left uh, for dead there along the side of the road. Luke 10.30 says that he was left there half dead. And that would seem to indicate that this poor man was helpless. He couldn't do anything to help himself. He was in that condition. And left in that condition, he would perish from his wounds and from exposure to the elements. Here was one who was in desperate need. Who would show him self to be a neighbor to this poor man and to love him by helping him who would show himself to be that neighbor well the first pass by we read was a priest in verse 31 who was likely coming down from Jerusalem having fulfilled his duties in the temple here was a minister of God who knew the scriptures, who knew God's commandments. Surely he would know his duty to love and to serve a fellow Jew in such desperate and needy straits. Malachi 2.7 says, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge 
And they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Surely, out of his mouth and out of his heart, he would realize here's someone in need and that he would stop and help him. Surely, he would know that even the law of God required God's people to care for the beast of an, of an enemy that strayed or the beast of an enemy that fell under a heavy load and burden that it was carrying. In Exodus 23, verses 4 through 5, if thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. And if a beast, how much more the enemy himself? One who appears in the presence of God as a minister on behalf of God's people would surely show mercy and compassion to this endangered, this injured fellow Jew who lay helpless, dying under the extreme burden of a savage beating and open wounds. Perhaps couldn't even cry out for help. Half dead. However, we read that he steered clear of this poor man, stayed on the other side of the road, just kept walking. Though he saw him, he didn't even stop to, to look at him. He just kept walking past the man on the opposite side of the road. Perhaps, we're not told why he did so, but perhaps out of fear that if he stopped, perhaps uh, he would suffer the same fate uh, by bandits. Or perhaps he, he reasoned in his mind, well, if I stop, if the man is dead, uh, I could become unclean by touching someone who was, who was dead. Or perhaps, again, uh, he was just in a hurry to get home and uh, he couldn't take the time uh, to help this poor man. All of his knowledge, all of the priest's knowledge of God's law was mere then pretense. It was hypocrisy. He had an outward form of godliness, but he denied the power thereof. He was missing that which was most important, love to reach out to someone who was in need. 1 Corinthians 13.2 says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. All the gifts of knowledge and understanding and truth, but have not charity. I am nothing. After the priest had passed by, we read in verse 32 that a Levite, who was an ordained servant and helper to the priests in the temple, came upon the helpless Jew as well. Now here was one who was accustomed to helping 
and assisting. That was his vocation, to be a helper. And yet, what does he do? Well, he stops on the other side of the road. He stops. He looks at the man in this sad state, in this condition. And then he likewise continues on his way. Will he cross the road to show mercy and to show love, to assist, to help one who so desperately needs that care? No. He's a servant in name only and does not, once again, evidence that he's a true servant because he doesn't have love. He doesn't have love for those who are in need. 1 Corinthians 13, 3. And though I bestow all goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me. Not something. Not a little bit. It profiteth me nothing. Without charity. No matter what I do by way of outward service, if I don't have love inwardly, internally, and I express that love, no matter what I do, it profits me nothing. But look, look, here, here comes another traveler. But one that we would not expect at all to stop. Because this traveler is a Samaritan, a despised Samaritan. The, the Samaritans were in fact despised by the Jews and they would not have really uh, any relationships one with another. This was primarily due to the apostasy into which the Samaritans had fallen, uh, falling away from the one true God and the one true religion. We see in, for example, in John 4, 9, the woman at the well, then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, that is unto Jesus, how is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus, on that same occasion with regard to the woman at the well, later on in that same chapter, John 4, verse 22, says to her, ye worship, ye know not what, as a Samaritan. You don't know truly what you're worshiping. You're not worshiping according to God's revelation. You're worshiping in ignorance. Jesus says to her, as a Samaritan, and then he goes on to say, in verse 22, we know, that is we who are Jews, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. It comes by way of revelation that God gave to Israel in, in Scripture. And so again, Samaritans had fallen away from the truth. In fact, when Jewish religious leaders wanted to cast the greatest 
slander and humiliation upon Jesus Christ, what did they call him? They called him a Samaritan. John 8, 48. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Though this man is a despised Samaritan, he approaches the Jew in verse 33. He comes near him. He comes over him, beside him. He looks upon this injured man in his helpless and hopeless condition, and he has compassion upon him. You see, for this Samaritan, the hostilities between the Jews and the Samaritans did not quench his love for this helpless Jew. Samaritan's love is not a, a mere feeling sorry, a mere having pity upon this man who is injured. The Samaritan's love is not merely uttering, oh, poor man, in this helpless situation. The Samaritan's love is a sacrificial love and giving of himself to this helpless Jew. He poured wine as an antiseptic upon his wounds and oil, of olive oil, as a lubricant into the wounds. He bound his wounds with bandages from his own garments, set him upon his own donkey, and took him to an inn where he could be cared for and paid the manager of that inn, that hotel, if you will, to care for him and promised him that if there was more money that was required, that upon his return he would pay the hotel manager at that time. This Jewish man that was injured was not, was not a family member, was not a friend, was not of the same religion or nationality, but the Samaritan had compassion upon the helpless Jew in his desperate need and showered him with sacrificial love. That's what the New Testament means by agape, the Greek word agape. That's the kind of love that Jesus is talking about in this, in this context. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, agape, with that sacrificial love, and love thy neighbor with agape, that sacrificial love. Where did we see that demonstrated chiefly, supremely, in the love of Jesus Christ, for we who are sinners? The invisible God, we're told in 1 John chapter 4, who cannot be seen, is however seen in a certain way. Is seen by the acts of love which we show to one another. Even upon the undeserving, in our minds, the undeserving. 
we're all undeserving, are we not? We're all undeserving of that kind of sacrificial love. But that's how, according to John, the Apostle John, that's how the Lord God is made visible is through our love, our internal and our external love for one another. Without that, God remains invisible. Without that, we, we have no concept or idea other than what we read in Scripture, but we don't see it in practice. Now the Lord Jesus, after telling the parable in verse 36, turns the tables upon the lawyer and asks him a question. Which now of these three, that is the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? To which question the self-righteous lawyer Answers in verse 37, and he said, He that showed mercy on him. Even this lawyer who interpreted the law of God through rabbinic interpretation, not necessarily accurately, but according to the interpretation of the rabbis, even he was compelled by Christ's parable to honestly deny the teaching of the, of the rabbis that our neighbor is only one to whom we are related by blood or nationality or color or faith. He was compelled, or compelled to acknowledge that the Samaritan who showed mercy was the one who was the neighbor to the one who was injured and to whom he showed God's love. Well, in light of Christ's clear teaching in this parable, we must all, every one of us, do some soul searching. It's not, it's not good enough, dear ones, to simply hear what Jesus says and, say, and to agree with what Jesus says or to hear the way it's expressed in a sermon and to agree with the way it's expressed, it's not good enough. That's not what the Lord is looking for. It's time for us to do some serious soul searching, not to look into the souls of others, but to look into our own souls. Who have we excluded from being a neighbor to whom we are to show the love of Christ in word and in deed. Who have we excluded? Who has offended us or wounded us? Who has slandered us or mistreated us? Against whom have we become bitter and angry and cannot bring ourselves to see as a neighbor whom Jesus calls us to love and to forgive even if there is no repentance, that Jew that was laying on the ground could not repent, could not say anything. That Jew that was laying on the ground was simply in need, regardless of the hostilities that, exi that existed between Jews and, and Samaritans. 
So even if there is no repentance or there is not, or there's mere semblance of repentance in our opinion, we are yet called to love. We are yet called to forgive. For love covers a multitude of sins. So we're taught in 1 Peter 4, 8. Agape love, that's the kind of love that's mentioned in 1 Peter 4, 8. Agape love is sacrificial love. It's the love of Christ. The Lord did not begin to love us once we repented. He loved us from all eternity. He loved us as sinners. He loved us as those who were rebellious. Perhaps there are those, whether believers or unbelievers, that just annoy us and grieve us due to their insensitivity, their callousness, their selfishness, or even their blasphemy and immorality. If the love of Christ, dear ones, can change the heart of one who called himself the chief of sinners, namely the Apostle Paul, if that love of Christ can change his heart, then let us not write anyone off as beyond the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Even if we must correct others that have offended us, we must not do so with glee. We must not do so with resentment and bitterness in our hearts. We must not do so with vengeful anger. But we correct with a broken heart. A heart that's broken by the holy love of Christ that dwells within us. That also, that same love, that loves and hopes and prays for and gives sacrificially to even those that have been unloving to us. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 6 through 7, talks about, again, charity, love, agape, the love of Christ. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Notice this as well, that charity, that sacrificial love, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. It doesn't give up. It doesn't give up. The second main question or point, which we'll spend uh, a lot less time on, but it, nevertheless, it's something I briefly want to address. And that is this. Am I to love even my enemy? In Luke 6, 35 through 36, Lord Jesus says, But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful, and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. 
it's clear from the words that I've just read, the words of the Lord Jesus, that we are to love even our enemy. The word again used there, love your enemy, is the same word, agape, a sacrificial love, the love of Christ toward even those who make themselves enemies to us. For God, the reason that we are to love our enemies is for God himself loves by way of showering upon his enemies, those who make themselves enemies of God. He showers upon them life, breath, food, clothing, rain, sunshine, shelter, jobs. And he restrains even evil in their lives so that they do not do all that they would desire to do by way of wickedness, even restrains the evil in their lives. This is, dear ones, a love. Speaking of the love of God here, love for his enemies, this is a love of free benevolence to the undeserving. To the undeserving. And that's, again, the nature of agape, of that kind of love. It's not bestowed upon those who are deserving. It's, those, it's bestowed upon those that are undeserving. Jesus did not die and show his love for us because we were deserving, but because he set his love upon us. It gives not, this kind of love gives not on the basis of one's merit, one's loveliness, the, does not give on the basis of how one has treated us. It's not given on the basis of that. It's not given on the basis that I like that person. It's not given on that basis. That's not, that's not the issue. It's not given upon the basis of that that person will reciprocate the love that I show, that I have some assurance that that person will reciprocate the love that I show to him or to her. It's not given on that basis. The only love, the only way to love, dear ones, the undeserving, we can't do it in our own strength. None of us can. We see the commandment, but we don't have the strength to keep that commandment in our own strength. The only way we can love the undeserving is for us to know the love of Christ. Because the love of Christ that dwells within us gives us that strength, gives us that grace to love those whom it is so hard for us to love. It gives us that grace. And dear ones, the undeserved love of Christ does beget children. And those children, as it were, are is the love that we show then to others. 
Love of Christ within us begets love to one another. The reason why we draw comfortable boundaries and lines around those whom we call our neighbor is because we realize once we include that offensive person within the circle of what is what is I consider to be a neighbor, we are then bound by God to show forth the unselfish, sacrificial, giving love of Christ to that person because that person now is my neighbor. When we draw boundaries around whom we are to show that kind of love, the love of Christ, it signals to us to all of us, that our love is yet self-centered, not Christ-centered. When we draw boundaries, it shows that our love is self-centered. It's all about us. It's all about what others can do for us rather than what we can do for others, even for those who are undeserving and even for those who have hurt us. Harboring bitterness, resentment, or a personal grudge toward others, furthermore, will eat us up, will consume us. It will flare up at other times, even if it remains buried for a while, it will flare up within us and become a fiery furnace of anger when it's provoked. It will make us miserable. Why? Will it make us miserable? Because it is sin against the Lord's commandment. That's why it will make us miserable. When we walk contrary to God's law, what follows in the life of a Christian is that we feel miserable. Something's wrong with us. Something's not right. We're convicted. To not love others as Christ has loved us is not a minor, insignificant sin. It's a grievous sin for which we must repent, for which we must seek God's forgiveness if we are to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. But someone may object uh, to what is being said here, and what, what we've read by, from the Lord Jesus uh, in Luke 6, 35-36, David declares that he hates his enemies with a perfect hatred. In Psalm 139, verses 21-22, through 22, where David says, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred, I count them mine enemies. How are we to respond uh, to what we read here and have we sing even when we come to that portion of the Psalter? Well, David is not speaking here about those who simply have made themselves his personal enemies, who have personally offended him, but those who, due to their rebellion 
against God, against his holiness, against his love, their hatred for God, have revealed themselves to be the enemies of God. David, you see, loved with a holy love of moral approval those who were the friends of God. And at the same time, David hated with a holy hatred of moral disapproval those who made themselves the enemies of God. You see, when it comes to how others view the Lord God, we, uh, we cannot be neutral. If we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and someone hates God, speaks against him, curses him, we cannot be morally neutral with regard to that person's hatred of God. We can't say that, well, that's fine. That's, that's no problem. Uh, that's cool. You know, you hate God. Uh, we can't be morally neutral when it comes to uh, uh, that type of hatred for the, for the Lord our God. And that's what David is saying. I can't be morally neutral. I don't hate others because they hate me. I don't hate others because they have mistreated me. Uh, I basically, he says, because of their hatred for the one true living God, they have become God's enemy. And when they become God's enemy, in that sense, they become my enemy. Because I'm united to the Lord. But again, I'm not hating them. I'm not uh, hating them because they've offended me. I'm not, uh, David, in fact, uh, in Psalm 35, uh, tells us what he did when people mistreated him. Did he hate them? Did he avenge himself against them? Did he, did he exercise uh, personal revenge against them? In Psalm 35, he says, False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things I knew not. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into my own bosom. I behaved myself as though he had been my friend or brother, I bowed down heavily as one that mourneth for his mother. That's, that was how he treated those who mistreated him, personally. But all he's saying is, I cannot be neutral when it comes to hatred for my God, for the one who has made me, for the one who has saved me, the one who has given me everything that I have. I can't be morally indifferent and neutral in that case. If they make themselves God's enemy, they make themselves my enemy as well. Justice, as we come to a near close here, justice against certain evils certainly may be pursued. But we must leave all vengeance, personal vengeance with God, with God. Paul summarizes our duty to even those who make themselves our personal enemies in Romans chapter 12. 
verses 17 through 21, where he says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. That is, by doing good to him, there will be brought to him a realization of his own condemnation by heaping coals of fire on his head. And then Paul ends with these words, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. With good. Application. Let's understand from this parable that like that poor Jew that was robbed and beaten and left for dead, we have all been beaten. We've all been robbed. We've all been left for dead by Satan and by sin who cared not for us left us uh, there to die. Many have walked by us, many in the world, who uh, claim to be um, those who care for people. Many have walked by us. Many, even in the name of religion, have walked by us. But they didn't truly care for our souls. But gave a passing glance uh, to our sad sad estate, being completely unable to help ourselves in that situation, Christ came along and had compassion upon us who were mangled and who were ugly due to our sin. Romans 5, 6, we read, for when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the godly, but for the ungodly. Jesus, like the loving Samaritan, had compassion on us. He stopped and he applied the wine of his blood and the oil of his spirit to our healing. He bound up our broken hearts with his own garments of righteousness. He brought us into his church to be cared for by faithful ministers and elders and deacons in order to feed us and to care for us. And he promised payment to those who faithfully minister to those who are sick and who are in need of help. We love our neighbor regardless of his condition because Christ became our neighbor and loved us who are ungodly. Jesus says to the lawyer finally in Luke 10 37, Go and do thou likewise. Do thou likewise.
as the loving Samaritan did to that particularly beaten, battered, half-dead Jew. Go and do likewise to one another. Please stand with me in prayer. Our glorious Savior, thou did not come to, to heal those who are well, but those who are sick, those who are without strength, those who know that they are unable to help themselves and heal themselves. Lord, we praise thee for the compassion that has been shown us by the Lord Jesus, by that love that is ours, his love for even we who are without strength, rescuing and saving us when we were ungodly. We pray our Father, give to us thy grace and strength for we cannot do this in our own strength to love as Jesus has commanded us to love. We need thee. May it be, Lord, our daily prayer for that grace to love thee with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. We thank thee, our God, that the grace is, is there. Even when we fall, even when we fail, the grace is there to lift us up, to renew our covenant with thee and to walk in thy ways of, of truth and love and faithfulness. We pray, Father, grant to us that we would go forth and do likewise as this loving Samaritan did to this beaten uh, Jew that suffered and was half dead along the roadside. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.